Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today we'll be discussing Prevent and everything to do with Prevent, from independent reviews to people's reviews into the same. With me to discuss this, Leila Ayat Al-Hajj, Director at Prevent Watch, and John Holmwood, Emeritus Professor of Sociology. Enjoy. I don't think I'd be wrong if I was to suggest that uh, amongst the most controversial and problematic strategies that uh, successive governments, both Labour and Conservative, have pursued over the past two decades uh, has been prevent. Um, not least because so much resources have been channeled into prevent in terms of thought, personnel, intellect, skills, research, studies, as well as money, um, with so little to show for. And if anything, I, 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 I'm going to argue that, um, in fact, things have gotten progressively worse since the inception of Prevent in the early 2000s, you know, the um, around just after, well, I'm not sure, 2003, 2004, would that be around the ballpoint figure of when this started? 2003 is when it were, was introduced. I think 2011 was when it shifted direction and became much more problematic. I think it was always problematic in how it was focused upon the uh, Muslim communities. But after 2011, it took on a much more rigorous security focus rather than a focus on community integration. But I would just add one thing and say that, yes, it's controversial. I think it should be deeply controversial but it is little examined within British uh, mainstream media. In a sense, because it's focused upon British Muslims, it's seen as an issue of them rather than an issue of us. Of course, I'm not a British Muslim, so I see Prevent as problematic in how it targets British Muslims, but also problematic for a wider public and is something that all of us should be deeply concerned but about. But would I be correct if, in a public audience, if I suggested that things have, despite all of these resources that I spoke about, being thrown at prevent over the years, that things have gotten worse. I mean, at least I, as a British Muslim, feel from what surrounds me, from what I see, from what I hear, from my uh, interactions with members of the community, I feel that they've gotten far worse. And also, I could also exemplify from home office figures that extremism hasn't gone, it hasn't receded. It's not, it's not like we're winning this particular battle. I think one of the things is all of the resources that have been injected into Prevent have gone into bulldozing whatever Prevent is of the day and whatever version of Prevent we have into implementing it. There has been no resources to actually look at if it's working. Um, and the one review that we were hoping would actually review it independently um, didn't end up doing that. Again, it just bulldozed it through. So all of the money and resources have never gone into actually looking at how prevent works. Does it really work? What kind of damage is it causing? It's all gone into prevent is working. That assumption of prevent is working. This is how it needs to be. And therefore just inject more resources because everybody needs to be looking at children and adults with a securitized lens. So of course, it's only going to get worse. And then you have issues of focusing on children because prevent is in that space of pre-crime. So of course, you know, 
the assumption is you're going to catch a terrorist 20 years before they ever become a terrorist. So you're looking at children as well as um, ensuring that every single worker, whether it's an educator or a doctor, has that worst case scenario in their mind through all the fear, whether it's the media, whether it's their specific prevent training, whether it's the co-option of prevent under safeguarding. So all of that is, of course, it's going to make it worse because people are confused. They don't actually know what prevent is. They don't know what extremism looks like. Government don't know what extremism looks like because they still fail to give us that actual definition of extremism. Um, so it's only going to get worse because you're running on fear and you're running on assumptions that something works, even though it's been proven not to work time and again. And the the fact that you mentioned that um, you know whether it be school teachers whether it be GPs whether it be people you know social carers uh, coaches at you know minor football clubs and the such um, they've all want one way or another become components of this particular strategy even if you're buying a fillet fish at McDonald's yeah like they've been trained to spot signs of radicalization yeah by 2017 over a million people were trained in prevent. That's by Home Office figures. That's 2017. They haven't issued any figures since then, but of course the program has been developed since then. But I'd, I'd just like to take a bit of an issue with one of the things you said you know, about extremists, because it's not quite clear what the focus of prevent is. So if I say violent extremism, you know that violent extremism means terrorism, and we know it's a really bad thing because what is bad about it is precisely its violence. But extremism is ill-defined and it's not unlawful. So, But it sounds as if it's potentially bad, but it's lawfully held opinions. That's why one of the things... But surely the if today, if the, in the media, someone was described as being an extremist or beholding extremist ideas, that would be almost deeming them on the periphery of violent extremism or of terrorism. I mean, it's 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 an extremely bad slur, wouldn't you? I, I think it, you agree? Is a, it is a bad slur, and obviously, but it's being applied, as Leila said, to, to school children. It's also applied to us. I mean, by virtue of criticizing prevent, you are judged to be an extremist because you're criticizing a government policy. And particularly if you are a Muslim civil society organization, critical of prevent, then that's labeled an extremist position. And the Shawcross uh, report recommends that Muslim civil society organizations should be certified according to their uh, opinions. And if they're judged to be extremist by a government agency, then there should be no public dialogue with them. What that means, no local authority should engage with them, and uh, nobody in receipt of public funds should engage with them. And that can be defined incredibly widely because it can include charities. So Muslim charities must be careful about their connections and and so on. So I think it's uh, extraordinarily pervasive, but on a very flimsy... Is that deliberate? Hmm? I was about deliberate? to say, I think that's yes. deliberate because... Yeah. I mean, to leave it sort of ambiguous, I mean, it's... It's like I, you know, my 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 eldest son is a is a solicitor, and um, he he often tells me that contracts are by default left ambiguous, so that basically there's a trade for solicitors. I mean, I I'm not entirely sure. I don't want to infringe upon or or, or offend solicitors out there, but but you know what I mean. I mean, is something left 
vague and ambiguous when it can be defined. I mean, it's not really that difficult for someone to come out and say what we mean by extremism is one, two, three, four, yet that has never happened. I think it is deliberate because, like you said, in the mind of the layman, when you say extremist, you're actually not, they're not interpreting it as extremist. They're thinking of terrorism. Exactly. Exactly. But, but we know that actually there's a huge difference between terrorism and extremism. Even though extremism hasn't been defined, we still know there is a big difference. But who takes upon themselves to think about those nuances? Unless you're within this space and you understand all the reports and the academia and you understand the arguments, you don't stop to say, okay, that person's been called an extremist. But it doesn't mean that they're a terrorist. It doesn't mean that they've done anything violent. Uh, it just means that what some of their views are disagreed with upon by who? Like by government of the day. So whoever's in government and whoever it is that's not towing the line and the status quo can then be called an extremist, whether you're Muslim or whether you're any kind of activist group, that term can be used. And recently we had, you know, hateful extremism being something that, oh, actually we, we now want hateful extremism. We were waiting for the commissioner of counter extremism at the time, who was Sarah Khan, to define extremism because none of the independent reviewers of terrorism wanted to touch prevent. Um, and they mentioned that you know, whoever was going to be the head of countering uh, extremism would come out with a definition of extremism. She didn't. And instead, she just came out with another added layer on top of extremism and said, well, actually, what we really need to focus on is hateful extremism. So, but we don't even, even know mean? what extremism is. You just compounded the word. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you have a series of uh, law and, and Britain has quite extensive laws in these areas. We have the most extensive laws in the area of terrorism legislation, violent and non-violent uh, terrorism, but we also have extensive laws about, you know, hate crime uh, and so on. So to add hateful extremism, well, you've actually already got hate crimes. So if anybody makes, uh, 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 you know, outland outlandish comments about any particular group, they can be prosecuted or at least investigated under hate crime. Extremism is yet more uh, problematic to define uh, than that. And I, and as uh, Leila said, is it deliberate? I'd say one thing is they can't define it. And, this, and so they did have an attempt around about 2015 that they, the idea was that they were going to introduce what they called a legislative backbone to prevent, but they couldn't find the uh, legislative definition. So the 2015... Uh, act just which introduces the prevent duty doesn't actually say what extremism is except that all public authorities have a duty to monitor and prevent uh, individuals becoming radicalized so even at the heart of the legislature there's a failure uh, failure to define it. But those who have come up with what the indicators of extremism will be have actually written, well, what's positive about our indicators is that they can be applied to whatever the government wishes to imply to them. That's explicitly stated in there, which means that, for example, the government can, and in the past has suggested that, say, some environmental activism, Extinction Rebellion, that that will be, can be counted as extremism, or Black Lives Matter can be counted as extremism. And what you also notice is the encroachment of the law into this area, so that increasingly aspects of um, 
uh, civil society protests are having extra laws attached to them. Too much noise at the uh, at a demonstration, for example, is you know is now I- illegal. So. So it's a very, you know, it's a very dangerous process. Just so that we don't get bogged down into semantics and make this about um, a, a linguistic issue that we don't have extremism defined, that we don't, well, before extremism, we don't even have terrorism defined to an extent. Whilst the, the whole world was invited to, to, to join into the coalition that was, you know, the, the, the war on terror. Um, but, but this is not about merely about definition of terms, there, there is a real life impact on uh, huge swathes of, of, of British society and probably even beyond. I'm, I'm going to talk in a little bit about my own experience in traveling the world and how people talk to me about how British, uh, you know, home office officials were coming to them and telling them they, they had to implement the whole package that was called prevent. But that's you know, down the line. But but this isn't about words, merely, is it, Leila? No, it's not. Words do have a big role to play because ultimately it's the words that people are using to make certain assumptions about people. Um, but it is impacting people and predominantly children. Even by home office statistics, in their own data, it clearly shows that children are overwhelmingly targeted by Prevent. And their data is really um, ambiguous as well because they don't tell you the real number of children impacted because their range is go from I think five to 11 and then I think they have a 15 to 20 range. Well, children are up to the age of of 18, right? So we don't even know the true number of how many children are impacted, but just the numbers that they're showing shows us just how many children are being referred to prevent. And you could think, okay, well, what does that even mean? Someone's referred to prevent, they've done nothing wrong, rather be safe than sorry, nothing's gonna happen, but something does happen. When those children are referred to prevent, They tend to be visited at home by a prevent officer. A prevent officer is essentially a counterterrorism officer. So most people would feel intimidated, even if your local police officer came to your door, let alone if a counterterrorism officer comes to your door. And on top of that, if there is a referral made um, on a child, then social services also get informed. So even if the children have never been known to social services, then you may also get visited by social workers um, and they may want to do an assessment on you and your family. And what's the implication of that as a parent? It means that essentially you could be radicalizing your child, which is another term which is thrown around. Um, But so it just puts everything on a very bad footing. There's already an assumption with the social workers coming in, with the prevent officers coming in, that something is wrong here, even if it was completely misinformed referral. So just that taste, even if nothing comes of it, just that taste in the mouth of someone to have that experience, them as well as their children. And some of these children are old enough to understand. You know, a nine-year-old, I mean, I would even say maybe five and six-year-olds nowadays because they're so smart, inshallah. Like, they know what's happening. Like, what's happening? Who are these people? Why am I being asked questions? You know, so let alone teenagers. And I think we find a lot of impact with the teenagers who really get impacted by it because they fully understand who social services are, who the prevent officer is, that they're being questioned on something really innocent that they said. Um, and that whole impact. And then the relationship with the school as well, because most of the times it would have been the school that made the referral. And trying to bridge that gap, you have children who are in like year seven or year eight. Um, they've just started school. You know, parents sometimes have moved neighborhoods, you know, moved across London or outside of London just to try and get their child into that school, only to realize that now their child has been referred to prevent, usually on a discriminatory basis. And that just throws everything off. And so then you have to try and rebuild that relationship with teachers who you trusted 
to educate your child and look after your child, essentially, um, who now you realize actually they think my child is a future terrorist. Yeah. Let's put it bluntly. I, uh, I mean, w what you mentioned earlier about there being that kind of, um, of shift in 2011 towards the securitization, let's say, of, 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 of the approach. How was it before? I mean, what was what was Prevent before that? Well, Befed, uh, Prevent was essentially a program encouraging community integration through various, you know, based on the idea that there were communities which were self-segregated. The argument that David Cameron put forward at the uh, Munich uh, conference about uh, people living outside British values and so on. So it was... Uh, it, it was, I think, uh, it had negative consequences for Muslim communities because that's a context in which it was uh, introduced. But it wasn't, uh, it, it was trying to put funds into developing understanding across communities. So if we say, well, let's give it a little bit of benefit of the doubt in that area, now what you're getting is a serious criticism of community integration attempts. So one of the things that Shawcross did was attack community integration projects and argue there should be a much greater security focus. So we've moved from the idea that what we're trying to achieve is community cohesion to starting to argue that community cohesion is in fact the problem in saying things like, well, it's because they didn't wish to uh, uh, create problems of community cohesion that various kinds of Muslim groups weren't challenged and that, uh, and that there are too few uh, uh, Muslims reported in to prevent because people are too worried about being considered racist. So you have that really, uh, that argument where they've turned the uh, things on their head really and are, are really now saying, you know, community cohesion is the problem, S uh, public safety is the, you know, is the main issue. And of course, that's also in the context of saying, and there's too much emphasis upon right-wing extremism. That's not where the problem lies. And that's because the people who are driving this forward are themselves linked to fairly far-right uh, groups. So if we say next, you know, early next month, there's going to be, you know, the uh, National Conservative Movement is meeting, they are going to be promoting ideas of replacement theory and so on. The Shawcross report says that these are ideas that are part of the mainstream, and yet equivalent ideas within an ethnic minority community would be regarded as, uh, as, extreme. as extreme. So, And you notice that they're also starting to target Sikh uh, what communities. Is, what is deeply well. concerning is that... Um, um, I remember a time, I'm old enough to remember a time when um, I would openly praise the kind of, uh, of essential values um, upon which British society was built. My problem today is that I can't do that anymore. The issue of uh, personal freedoms, of personal space even, I mean, that's no longer there. The issue of data protection, that's no longer there. I have friends who are GPs and who tell me about the kind of training that they receive. 
And many of them openly say to me that they are horrified by what they are expected now to do, in fact, demanded to do, and if found not to comply with the new policies, that they would be admonished and probably even sacked and lose their jobs. And that involves infringing on data protection, basically telling third parties who have absolutely no relationship to, to, the, to the patient about stuff which they can't even tell to the parents or the, the closest families of the patient. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite horrific where we're heading. It's particularly bad in the health sector, I think, because people, especially within mental health, are already finding it hard to build up that confidence and trust to um, open up to anyone. Then to think that actually, if I open up to you, you could go and share my data uh, with a, a prevent officer is bad just to think that without it actually happening. But then knowing that it actually happens, because we have had cases where this has happened, and we've had cases where a four-year-old was referred to prevent, and the medical data of her and her younger uh, siblings were then shared um, before they'd even met the family or anything like that. Like they'd already shared the medical records. That mother, it's been over four years now, that mother still has an issue when it comes to going to hospitals, uh, trusting her GP. So it has this continual knock-on effect. That's within healthcare. You have it within schools as well. You know, schools are logging in the safeguarding file and that safeguarding file travels with a child from primary school to secondary school, secondary school to college. So if you were referred just by some accident, you know, in, in primary school, well, your secondary school knows about it and your college knows about it. So you can never quite dust away that idea that actually somebody at some point thought that you could be, you know, the future terrorist. One could only imagine the kind of implications on someone's entire life. I mean, where they're accepted at uni, for instance, what kind of employment they're allowed to, to seek and the such. But both of you authored a report that came out uh, just around five, six weeks ago. And uh, I know for a fact that within the Muslim community, within Muslim civil society, it made quite significant waves. I'd like to, to discuss that. I mean, why you came to it. I mean, obviously, we know why. We know what the, what the main uh, area of, uh, of, of thesis was. It was the Shawcross uh, review. But um, what uh, I found extremely frustrating was the fact that it was barely mentioned in the mainstream media when um, it obviously had so much significance towards this strategy that's been ongoing for now two decades and that has such an impact on public as well as private lives throughout the country. Um, so tell me first about how you came to decide on working on this report. So when Shawcross was appointed as independent reviewer, um, there was a huge boycott. Over 500 uh, Muslim organizations yeah, and, and individuals my own, yes. boycotted this, yeah. right? So there was no credibility and just given. To, just to explain why? Uh, because he was known already for making various Islamophobic statements. Um, he wasn't trusted as an independent reviewer and he supported every single war on terror initiative that UK government has put forward. Uh, he was the second uh, appointee to that because the first appointee was Lord Carlisle, yeah. who was biased and had taken a part in the 2011 review as well. So he stepped down after a legal challenge, well, just before a legal challenge, but once a legal challenge had been put forward, so he didn't continue on and try to challenge it, he stepped down. And Shawcross was put forward, which is even worse in the eyes, especially of Muslim community, to put forward someone like that. It was 
slap in the face to, to, to suggest that there's a problem with Prevent and one of the main problems with Prevent is how discriminatory it is towards Muslims and then to put Shawcross's face as the independent reviewer of Prevent, um, you know, I think that just caused uh, outrage and people just gave up on expecting government to put forward any credible uh, independent reviewer. They bulldozed through with that even though this boycott took place in 2001, early 2001. Um, building 2021. Off, yeah, sorry, 2021. <laughs> I've gone all the way back. Although he may he may have been appointed back in been. 2001 yeah, because know. this is absolutely, the absolutely. So, 2021, March 2021. Um, there was this boycott, and uh, following on from that, we thought, well, there's a lot of momentum here. There is a lot of really good evidence in terms of the harms of prevent that many people didn't want to engage with the official review. And so we uh, created something called the People's Review of Prevent to put forward that evidence so that people didn't have to engage with the official review that had no credibility, um, as well as put forward you know, many of the case studies that Prevent Watch has. We have like the largest resources of Prevent Watch over uh, Prevent cases, over 600 now, but at the time it was just over 500 cases that we had. Um, so we had like real life testimonials. We had, um, you know, data from people's like emails that they had shared that they wanted to put forward as part of the review to prove and show, look, this is what's happening. This is what's happening when prevent, uh, prevent, uh, referral occurs. So we put all of that forward. Again, there was very little uptake from mainstream media. Um, even though it was the first report of its kind, even though it had analyzed over 600 cases, which nobody else had done before to date. And it took into consideration all of the other reports um, in the academic world and across civil society with regards to the harms of Prevent. And our main conclusions from that was that Prevent isn't working. It doesn't actually stop terrorism, which is what it says on the tin. It's curtailing other human rights and civil liberties whilst being implemented. And it's disproportionately targeting children and traumatizing them and their families, particularly Muslim children and their families. So those were our three main things. We, we raised issues about data concerns as well. So you would think that actually, bearing in mind one of the main take home points was the impact on children and data. And given how important these You'd think that are. it would be, it would make page At two. At least a tiny I mean, let's, little. Let's, let's yeah. not talk about page one, but page two. Yes. Yeah. Or even page four, to be honest, but we, you know, it would have made some noise. There wasn't. Now we published this in anticipation that Shawcross was going to go live anytime soon in uh, 2022, in February of 2022, because we were told, oh, he's going to go live imminently. He's going to publish his report. Uh, we had to wait another year before he did publish. Um, and then when he did publish, of course, we had something to say in retaliation of, of, of what was being said. We knew a lot of his lines already because most of what had been leaked in the, in the media was pretty much verbatim of what came out in the report, which also begs the question, like, how did the media get this six, seven, eight months prior to it being disclosed uh, publicly? So... Uh, yeah, so we had all of these uh, thoughts and considerations that we wanted to put forward. And then we actually read the report, realized just how poor the report was yeah. in terms of academic rigor, in terms of some basic like fact checking um, and programs that he should have had full access to. I mean, this was an independent review. He would have had you know access to, to everything available in terms of home office and prevent. Um, and things just were not included or had been completely omitted as if he had no idea this if this existed um so we wanted to put forward a response to to his uh, report as well as what we'd already provided which was an alternative in a way to the report 
and then thought, okay, well, he's made some specific arguments and tried to justify them and essentially tried to justify openly discrimination. Uh, and we want to address these points specifically. So this is where we brought out the next report, uh, which was the one about six weeks ago on the response to Shawcross. I don't know if I mean, John wants to. The, I mean, I try my best as an academic, as someone who heads a, a think tank, uh, not to uh, be too critical of other people's academic work. But sometimes you just can't help yourself. And I have to say that the Shawcross Independent Review read to me like our regular political briefing papers. It was extensive, but it was very much, I mean, the political narrative was obvious. And I have to say, I agree with Leila, absolutely. It was not only poor, it was problematic to the extreme. I mean, sometimes you can put up with a with a poor report and say, well, you know, just add that to the billions and billions of papers of useless sort of information. But this was written with a, a, an, an, not even an undertone, but with, with a language that was problematic and with ideas and suggestions that are extremely problematic. Yes, I think it, I mean, it is a, a, extraordinary. I mean, I, I hope that our response to it reads as a measured re response. So any, uh, I th hope it reads as measured and forceful, but the force derives from how poor the Shawcross report is. It's as, it's as if it's, you know, it, it, you couldn't write about it seriously without really serious uh, criticisms of its methodology. It was largely anecdote, but it was also quite vicious in the way in which it attacked Muslim individuals and groups, and particularly around uh, question, you know, the community integration programs. And the extraordinary thing about that was since 2015, Britain, uh, the British government has run its community integration programs out of the Home Office under the umbrella, building a stronger Britain together. That is not mentioned at all in the Shawcross report. That program was itself evaluated in uh, 2021, in July 2021. That's not mentioned in the Shawcross report. So something that you think, well, it's going to be one-sided, but it must surely be comprehensive in terms of how it addresses what Prevent is about, just left out large... Uh, uh, sections of prevent and seemed to be really ignorant, but it was also making extraordinarily authoritarian uh, uh, recommendations. Moves. Yes, so all of its recommendations have been adopted, and yet they're all problematic, and they are all, in fact, contradicted by other government reports that have come out, uh, you know, close close after it. So. It's quite extraordinary that nobody in the media has picked up the this highly problematic uh, nature. It's not even picked up in the liberal media where you would think this should be uh, something. Why is that? I, I mean, I, I just find it very difficult to understand other than I think the liberal media is happy to discuss uh, racism and anti-racism. It really doesn't like to discuss uh, religious freedoms or religious uh, liberties because it wants to imagine a secular future rather than a Britain in which uh, the public sphere is made up of different voices, including religious voices and including the voices for what are in Britain uh, minority religious. 
voices. So I think there's a sort of liberal movement away from a diverse public uh, sphere. What they want is a secular public sphere, not a liberal public sphere. Liberalism itself emerges within the context of religion, religious difference. And now liberalism doesn't wish to countenance and, and support religious difference. So, I, you know, I find that uh, quite extraordinary. And it, uh, for me, for ever since an involvement in the Trojan horse affair, I've not been able, you know, usually, and I don't say, well, the uh, media should publish things by me. But if you can't even get a letter correcting facts into a newspaper, there's something quite uh, extraordinary about the way in which this is being managed both on the left and right of politics for different kinds of uh, reasons. I mean, I, I've, I, I personally have been part of three um, sort of um, feedback committees into the Carlisle and then the Shawcross um, uh, reviews. And I can safely say that out of the dozens of recommendations that the three separate independent uh, committees uh, provided none, absolutely none were taken on board. None were even mentioned, uh, despite the fact that I have to say that out of the three, the three were non-Muslim. I mean, they were headed by non-Muslim either universities or think tanks or academic centers or the such. Um, so there seems to be some sort of aversion to take on any kind of criticism of what has become a staple of uh, of, of, of British government strategy, not even policy. I mean, it's not something that you can think that uh, on the manifesto of opposition parties in, in the next elections will be something regarding prevent. There's not, I, I, I can safely say there's not go going to be a mention of uh, thereof. But what is problematic, and I mentioned this um, a little bit earlier, is that in my travels, um, more than once, I have been told about the approaches of home office officials to foreign governments, almost twisting their arms to take on prevent as it is, as though it is some sort of franchise. It is a product, just like a Big Mac or a Philly fish, just like you mentioned, that wherever you go in the world, you'll find it the same, the same ingredients, the same taste, the same look and the such, the same packaging. This is also required to be adopted as is, without any kind of... In fact, I think I'm okay to say that um, it was back probably 2013, 2014, I was in South Africa and I met with officials of the Interior Ministry over there and they were extremely angry and upset. And someone even mentioned how the officials were sort of lecturing them that unless they adopted PREVENT with all its parameters, in all its methodologies, in all its objectives and the such, and its tools, and then it could be seen that South Africa is going soft on extremism and the such. And the lady who uh, was speaking to me said, listen, we have had youngsters who were hot in the head, who were problematic, who had certain mental health issues and the such, who tried to get to Syria and the such, 
we solved it like we do in South Africa. And I remember that very, very well. And she said, no one has the right to come, you know, either from London or from elsewhere and to come and lecture us on how to deal with our own youngsters. These are families. They belong to, to good people and the such. And we're not going to create that kind of fraction and the such that I'm not entirely sure what's happened since. And I'm not really, you know, confident that uh, the South Africans have had their way. But this, if anything, it alludes to an extremely concerning trend that we're not just problematizing this at home, but we're trying to ship it also abroad. It's seen as best practice. So prevent is seen as best practice and best model uh, to use across the globe um, for countering violent extremism. Um, and so when you go into other countries, they won't call it prevent. It will be called CVE or some kind of, of form of, of countering violent extremism or preventing violent extremism. But it carries the same core, the same ideas as prevent. Um, and it is following that. And if you even look at the states, um, how they're rolling out their CVE, basically the United States looks pretty much like how the UK looked about six, seven years ago. Um, in terms of how funding is being administered to different groups and organizations, how various Muslim organizations are being asked to share information about um, whoever's coming to their youth groups or, or any other like you know clubs that are being run. Um, so it's it's definitely been adopted um, and because it carries that same basis and that same logic, um, that is what is the problem. It's not the fact, the problem isn't the fact that prevent is in the UK. The problem is the root of, of prevent, the logic it's based on and how flawed that is. And the moment that logic has been exported and it has been, and I remember there was FOI back uh, quite a few years ago um, when there was some information trying to be asked uh, to the Home Office about prevent specifically. And I remember the wording of that FOI saying something like, we can't give this information because it would damage commercial interests or something along those lines. And that was the first indication that we had that, oh, so there are some interests that you have here financially or commercially attached to prevent as well as what you claim to be national security, as well as if you look at the scope and the terms of reference of the prevent review, it said that it would only look at prevent in the UK and it wouldn't look at uh, foreign interests or again, something along those lines and how, something to that effect of how it was worded. And so it's interesting to see that they specifically mentioned that in terms of reference, which begs the question, so what is the foreign component to to prevent yeah john one of the recommendations put by shawcross was that well i'm 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 reflecting the uh, the, the spirit of what uh, he recommended and, and he said something about how resources were scuppered in focusing on white nationalists and far right supremacists and the such rather than you know looking at what they should have looked at in his words yes it's slightly puzzling because on our analysis, all the data he has suggests that the far right are more of a serious issue within the definitions of prevent than is uh, Islamist so-called uh, extremism. So if I say, well, if you look at um, people, when people are uh, referred into prevent or reported to prevent for a consideration for a initial referral and then a movement on to the de-radicalization program itself channel, they're being assessed at each of the stages by counterterrorism officers. So these are people with 
serious interests in, in security. They're not do-gooding liberals concerned about the uh, legitimate right-wing expression, as Shawcross seems to apply. And what you see is that a higher proportion of far-right uh, reports to prevent go through into re referral. And prevent is, you know, a self-contained process. You can't say, well, the far right is less uh, important because the actual terrorist risk at the moment is more Islamist than it is the far right, because prevent is some distance back seeking to uh, counter what might be a future risk. And all the evidence is that the far right is a likely larger future risk. So it's difficult to see how uh, Shawcross gets to that conclusion, except that he's seeking to modify not just the amount of far-right people to get referred into Prevent, but their pathway <laughs> through prevent and that then is uh, you know then that would be deeply worrying from a security perspective if what is being shaped is the security judgment rather than what he says well the problem is that people don't wish to re uh, you know r report uh, 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 muslims because they fear being thought of uh, as racist so i think there's something really quite sinister in that uh, process but what um but of course the difficulty with prevent is that since you're dealing with people's views and attitudes which are you know at some distance from criminality you can't indicate that there is any you know how do you identify what a success like trying to prove a negative oh well we had this amount of people who were considered by prevent and uh None of them have gone on to uh, commit actions. Well, they were not very likely to <laughs> commit those actions anyway, stance. because terrorism is very, uh, uh, you know, there's very few people commit uh, terrorist offences. But if you then look at um, the, uh, you know, what is said about, you know, those who do commit terrorist offences, oh, they've been associated with PREVENT. In most of the cases, the failure was in the security services, not in PREVENT. So I think the one of the striking things that happened is that, uh, and I think that Shawcross was holding back for the Manchester Arena inquiry to come out, but what he did instead was refer to... Uh, evidence that was put forward into the inquiry. And of course, evidence into inquiry doesn't mean that the inquiry is going to accept that that evidence is sound. When the Manchester Arena inquiry uh, was completed, its report did said that, well, uh, the Abadi brothers were unlikely to have been uh, identified within Prevent didn't identify failings with Prevent, which were the ones that Shawcross identified, said the failings were with the security services. So what we have is a Manchester Arena inquiry saying what we need is an urgent overhaul and review of counterterrorism uh, 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 activities and policies 
at the really hard end of uh, counter-terrorism, uh, uh, with Shawcross saying, what we really need to do is increase the involvement of the very groups that are being identified as poorly organized. Are we, are we, are we looking at prevent and thinking that it needs, whether it be tinkering or whether it needs major radical overhaul, or are we looking at the very concept of creating such a strategy? I mean, personally, I would suggest that the very notion that we need a strategy, you know, to look into the affairs of individuals of a particular community within British society is in itself problematic. And it's, you know, we have this, uh, we have this uh, concept in uh, academia, you all know, that you sometimes problematize something. It's not a problem, but once you mention it, it's like Pandora's box. You open a can of worms and it becomes a problem. So which is it, uh, Leila? I mean, is it that we need to change and overhaul and tinker about with, with prevent to make it less problematic? Or, or is it that we need to do with without all of this? I think the question is, um, you know, do you believe that you can predict the future? And if we answer that question, and if you answer it as no, I mean, if you answer it as yes, okay, fine, <laughs> I won't judge. But if you believe that the answer is no, you cannot predict the future, because so far we haven't been able to predict the future for any crime, let alone terrorism, then that answers whether or not prevent needs to be tinkered with or it just needs to end, because that is what prevent is based on. It's based on the idea that you can predict the future based on what you're going to say and how, what beliefs you have. Um, and if we don't believe in at that... At the age of five. At the age of five, or even at the age of 20, yeah. to be honest, it ma really makes no difference because if you don't believe that you can predict the future and predict the future crime, mm. and this is separate to like predictive policing and, you know, okay, this area has a higher, you know, knife crime rate or something like that. This is, this is separate to that idea. Um, and this is separate to the idea of stopping something before it occurs, which a lot of people get trapped into this idea of, well, surely you would want to stop something before it happens. Yes, we already have that. That's already dealt with in legislation. In quote, offences are where people are planning or preparing, or even if you intended something, you know, you, you're already in that space where now you have that intention. I'm not saying can you predict what people's intentions are. I'm saying can you predict the future of someone and whether or not they will commit a crime? And we can't do that for things that have much higher rates than terrorism. So we can't say that for anything with regards to murders, to domestic violence. You know, we can't say that, oh, we can predict who's going to be the next paedophile. But yet we feel comfortable saying we can predict who's going to be the next terrorist. Mm -hmm. And this is what we need to implement across the board and apply to children and adults alike um, in order to do that. So I think based on that, then the answer is, of course, it can't be tinkered with. I mean, even if you try to make it less discriminatory, it's still harmful. And so when we have people calling us, we don't just have Muslims calling us to complain that they've been referred to prevent. You know, we have non-Muslims also calling us who have been referred to prevent. And it's the same issues. You know, so we're not saying, well, actually, you know, prevent's really harmful because it's targeting the Muslim community. Yeah, it's targeting the Muslim community, but that's only one thing that we need to be worried about when it comes to prevent. The whole pre-crime logic, even outside of prevent, because prevent just exists as one thing and okay, it's incorporated its roots into all different aspects of life and, and across various policies. But there are other things like, for example, in the other bills, like the, the right to protest and people saying, well, actually now you can intervene on a protest if you think it might go down a route of, of criminality. And it's like, well, how do you know? So all of that depends on the pre-crime logic. So actually 
yes, we talk about prevent. I mean, in America, we used to talk about profiling. Yeah. So profiling was the way that... Uh, so know. this is essentially, pre prevent is based on profiling as well. Um, but I think all of that, when, we, when we're looking at pre-crime and we see action and we start identifying elements of pre-crime, not just in prevent, but it's become so normalized now and accepted that it's appearing in other parts of legislation as well, um, then that is problematic. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the Shawcross review and recommendations are very dangerous. And if they were properly publicized and properly addressed, I think the public would easily see how dangerous they are. So if you ask one question, you know, every independent reviewer of terrorism legislation is puzzled by the fact that prevent is one of four strands of counterterrorism, but only three of those strands come under the remit of the uh, uh, independent reviewer. So all of them have called for there to be a statutory basis for the review of prevent. Uh, Shawcross is absolutely implacably opposed to a regular annual review of prevent. That can only be because the, of the nature of the evidence that a proper statutory-based review would produce. Instead, what he's recommending is that there should be a unit within the Home Office that directs prevent and organizes all the activities associated with prevent across government departments and down from uh, uh, central government to local authorities. So it's an extraordinarily authoritarian measure which so will... it's not to regulate, it's actually to disperse yes. and to disseminate. Yes, and there will be no parliamentary Overview. oversight for that. And that entity is a political entity, what we refer to in the report as uh, previously government has talked about having policy czars. So you have a crime czar, a knife crime czar, you have a homelessness czar and so on. We did have a prevent czar and that was the, uh, a uh, the uh, Commissioner for Counter-Extremism. What we now have is a political commissar, that is re somebody responsible for the political direction of prevent independently of parliament, in the Home Office, and in a sense above the uh, groups within the uh, Home Office. So in a sense, directing counter-terrorism policing activities within. So that that is an extraordinarily dangerous thing. But I think also what Shawcross does, I say, well, one of the things that's interesting about the idea that came along with Prevent, and particularly in schools, is teaching fundamental British values. Those values are fairly straightforward, democracy, rule of law, uh, mutual respect, and tolerance, and so on. And I'd say, well, perfectly happy with schools teaching those values. Indeed, lots of parents think that schools should teach values uh, that would uh, facilitate living together in uh, you know different communities in Britain. So that's important. You call them British values, and you suggest that there's a, a deficit in ethnic minority communities who are not quite British enough have to be inculcated in those values. But what Shawcross now shows is that he that they're not that they don't believe that white mainstream British public actually has British values, because what they're, argue, they're arguing to 
facilitate right-wing expression, which includes nationalist ideas, xenophobic ideas, anti-immigration, and so on. So you think, well, schools shouldn't be thinking that the expression of any of those ideas are indications of extremism. Why? Because a lot of British people hold them. And so you you think, well, something has started to be revealed by the uh, Shawcross Review, and that's a very distinct neoconservative right-wing shift within uh, within conservatism uh, itself, and it has an authoritarian and populist edge to it. And that, that, you know, that's incredibly dangerous and particularly where you can continue to justify it by making British Muslims as a scapegoat and you know, uh, and so on. Yeah, a little bit of an sort of an admin PR question on, on your report. I, I'm presuming you, you made the report available to MPs and to House of Lords and the such. Um, dare I ask what kind of response you got? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if people read it. I don't know if MPs read it, but we did send uh, the People's Review of Prevent, at least. Did we also send the response to Shawcross, yeah, uh, and the response to Shawcross to every single MP um, and House and members of the House of Lords as well. So they all have it. I think what's interesting is that when the Shawcross report was put forward, the 34 recommendations were, were put forward, um, Nobody really had much to say about it. And even of the three or four MPs who were in Parliament and tried to make some comments, didn't seem to be armed with the arguments that they could have been armed with. So it wasn't really challenged. Yeah, it It wasn't really challenged. The challenge was there. It was already there in the People's Review of Prevent before we'd even put out the response to Shawcross. And our report, of course, came out before Shawcross. So had they taken consideration, then they would have had um, some more kind of substance to whatever they were going to say in in response. Yeah, I think uh, British MPs don't think highly enough of the British public. That is, that's it. They, uh, quite a statement. I, I don't <laughs> think they believe that people are capable of listening to arguments and reaching judgments. So, and and particularly if they uh, wished, they don't want those. Um, uh, arguments to be voiced in in public because they might get uh, public support. Uh, there's pressure on on uh, on stopping those uh, arguments being maintained. So that's you can see that in the way the Shawcross report was launched. I mean, this is a report in which the actual verbatim report was given to journalists. And that that included statements that lawyers within the Home Office were apparently saying were potentially libelous of individuals. And you look at how the that has been managed. Individuals have been named in the report, despite lawyers saying they're libelous. Obviously, there's no libel against uh, 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 a report within the uh, House of Commons, but they're allowed to sit there so long as nobody repeats them outside the the house they can be given public dissemination so you don't name individuals but you say there are some individuals who have been supported 
with funding from Prevent and yet are extremists and so on. So you're creating a really, I, I think, a really um, an environment that uh, creates anxiety and suspicion. And you're doing that, uh, uh, you know, you're in a sense doing that deliberately through media release, leaking, uh, uh, and so on. And that's what prevents, uh, a, you know, a proper you know, debate. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks. That was lovely. <laughs> okay. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.